On this bonus comment section edition of Download, we've got an interview with the old school originator of internet movie culture. We've got questions, comments, and feedback from listeners, and a cameo appearance of sorts by Vin Diesel. All of this and more, so let's get ready to dial up, log on, and download. Welcome. Welcome to another comments section of Download. My name is Joe Scott, the creator of Download. And with me, as always, on these episodes is our executive producer, Christina Bell. Hey, Christina. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? Doing great. Doing great. It's been a little bit of a wild week. We've gotten a lot of uh, responses to our show, a lot of listens, and uh, we're hearing a lot of uh, different (laughs) opinions. So uh, it's it's always great to just sort of see how your message is being digested by different people. And um, there are a lot of different perceptions of what we're doing. And I, I find all of that to be very uh, interesting. But how are things going on your end? Everything is good. I'm excited to unpack all of this with you today. Excellent. So last week, we debuted episode four, which was titled Thumbs Up. And within sort of this rise and fall narrative that we're trying to tell here, um, this is sort of the end of the rise portion of the story. You know, we, we sort of followed this site from before it started to its uh, very humble beginnings to w- this point now where it's really just picked up a lot of traction. Um, and you could make the argument that it maybe picked up more traction than it probably uh had any business having. To me, what is interesting is that we focused on a lot of the positives that Ain't It Cool News accomplished in and around the years of 1999 and 2000. And this is when a lot of the writers were sort of coming in to uh, work for the team. And then, you know, in this group of writers, you also had people who managed to break out. And uh, one of those was Kevin Beagle, who, you know, he wrote this test screening review of There's Something About Mary he caught the attention of the Fairley brothers and um, they brought him on to work on their movies and he's had a whole career. Um, I think that's really what makes this website unique is that a lot, it had a lot of writers who came and went and some of them went on to do really fascinating things. Another one of them being a filmmaker, David Lowry, who made uh, the big movie last year, the green Knight. Did you see that movie? I did not. What was Green Knight about? Was it well done? It was fantastic. It was a very, a very lo-fi fantasy epic, you know, very low stakes story about just the root of bravery and um, the slow lingering death that cowardice can bring on your life. And as far as work from people who used to just write for free on the internet, I think it, it's great. But I think beyond that, it was Probably, in a lot of ways, the best fantasy film since the Lord of the Rings movies. What? I would actually say I liked it better than uh, the last two Lord of the Rings movies. You know, there's just a sense of wonderment that I like from fantasy that uh, it really brought back. It's not holding your hand. It's not spelling things out. You know, you are in a fantastic world. And I really, I thought that it was a unique vision. Sure. So I love high, I, I mean, I love fantasy. Um, that's my favorite genre at the moment. So you need um, to watch I, this movie. I will. Although I will say the Lord of the Rings, I'm not 
as obsessed about it as a lot of people who like fantasy. I think my favorite piece of fantasy um, as of recent was actually the Dark Crystal reboot. I, I I don't know if you watched that on Netflix, but that was my favorite. I thought that, it was amazing. I haven't seen the reboot, but I, you know I love the movie. And, and that was the thing is you had all these fantasy movies in the 80s that I think really brought forth this idea that anything could happen, that these were just completely different worlds. And I honestly feel like the Lord of the Rings movie sort of took that from us in the end. Like it, it all became very focused on militaristic formations and huge epic battles, which, you know, I, I appreciate the scope and the amount of work it took to make the battles in the Lord of the Rings movies. But I think that the battles kind of took what I liked most away from fantasy. Yeah, I was maybe that's why I I didn't love the movies. I thought the movies were fine, but um, I, I feel like I'm going to get a lot of hate mail for this. But um, I I really love the rake. Is it Rankin Bass, the cartoon from the '80s? Yeah, yeah. That that was of the Hobbit. That was one of my favorite takes on um, a Tolkien work. But yeah, yeah. And then don't you know, don't, don't hate me. I don't hate you. Not you. I'm talking about the viewers <laughs> for for not loving Lord of the Rings. <laughs> well, you know, The Hobbit's a great example though because I felt like the Hobbit movies that came out were the opposite of the Ring and Bass. They were just so dark and full of grisly violence. It was like, yeah, this was a children's book. Yeah, yeah. I think it lost that. Anyway, beyond fantasy. Beyond fantasy, um, back to the realm of the internet. You know, we focused on a lot of the positives in this chapter, and it's really one of the last times that we do that. But despite the positives, we started to also see the cracks in the veneer of this online revolution. You know, as much as it was supposed to change things up, we saw, we started to get a lot of the backswing from the the fame that these people had achieved. One of them being the Oscars hacking scandal. And one point that I brought up in an early edit of the show that that we didn't talk about is um, Harry Knowles. He denied having hacked the Academy Awards and, you know, his defense was, I did not hack into a computer. I merely found a computer and accessed this information. (laughs) That's a fine line there, buddy. (laughs) Well, I mean, textbook that is hacking that is what you're doing when you hack and i guess you know maybe it's not hacking in the sense that you're wearing like a dark hoodie (laughs) and fingerless gloves yeah yeah it's not like mr robot style yeah but it's hacking when you're accessing this information that is hacking sure um you know and it was um it was a whole thing where it's like should you be accessing this information? And, you know, one of the reasons I brought it up is because we had a similar situation where all of this data had been hacked from Sony and journalists had the decision, do they access this information or do they appreciate the fact that it was illegally retrieved and not touch it? And a lot, when presented with this Apple, a lot of news media organizations definitely bit from it. And, uh, you've got a lot of reporting from those Sony hacks. Yeah. The difference and- is, is news news outlets have editors that should stop that from happening, but if they don't, they typically fire the reporters. Right. But ain't it cool news. This was like a hodgepodge of volunteer critics yeah. who was going to fire them for doing something unethical. Right. That's that. I think that's the difference. 
you know, the other piece we touched on was uh, the Drew McWeenie script review. And, you know, we had an, we have this interactive feature that um, Anchor, our podcast host, allows us to use where we can ask people questions and they can vote in real time. And the question I asked in this episode is, do you believe Harry Knowles when he said that he did not know that Drew McWeenie and Moriarty were the same person? And um, initially it was 100% said no, they don't believe that. But then uh, it slowly shifted. It's uh, It went to... Uh, Eight, 18% saying yes, they did believe Harry with wow. the other, uh, <laughs> with the remaining uh, 82% saying no, they did not. Um, do you think it's possible to know someone on the internet for years and not know their real name, Chris? <laughs> um, so while that I suppose could be possible in some context, do I think it was possible in the context of Harry? No. I think having someone work under him, even if it was for volunteer, you know, even though it was non-paid, having someone work under you to produce movie reviews, I'm sure at some point his real name would pop up. Um, I'm sure if he saw, um, heard that Harry was reviewing his script, he would have said something too. Um, I don't know. There's just so many, so many things pointing to the fact that yes, he probably knew his name. What do you think? Well, you know, they met each other in their Usenet days mm-hmm. and I've, I've met people who knew both Harry and Drew during their Usenet days and everyone who knew Drew during his Usenet time knew what his real name was. Well, that, yeah, that's a good piece of evidence right there. I talked to one screenwriter and you know, he doesn't believe that they, that they did not know that this was Drew McWeenie and Moriarty as the same person. But one interesting thing he said was that this was his way to get his foot in the door. And, you know, as a screenwriter, he doesn't blame anyone for uh, doing what they can do to, to try to, to get a movie made. It's like, you just, it's by hook or by crook, you know, I guess there again, like your ethics as a journalist versus your ethics as someone who works in the entertainment industry, because your job in the entertainment industry is to tell the best story you can. Your job as a journalist is to tell the truth to your readers, your listeners, your audience. I I agree. I don't blame Drew for wanting someone to write a review about his script. Um, You know, uh, that's I think it's pretty normal to submit press releases and send your media to people for reviews, you know, like sending someone a free access to your video game to write a review about it. Like, that's okay. But no, Harry, Harry should have absolutely disclosed that he knew the, 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 one of the authors. So yeah, that's on Harry. Yeah. You know, and I think that would have just helped everyone in the long run and saved a lot of trouble. I think the other interesting piece too, is that when when they made this review, the other film that Harry reviewed was Donnie Darko. I love that movie, by the way. So that was an interesting piece of movie knowledge for me. Yeah. You know, he reviewed that film, that script positively, and they made that into a film. And that film was massive. You know, it had the most unfortunate release ever. You know, it's a movie centered around a plane crash and it came out right around 9-11. Oh, right. Yeah. And so... Uh, you know, the temperature in the room just wasn't very uh, receptive to Donnie Darko at the time. But I remember I saw the case at my Blockbuster video and I was I was like, what the hell? I'll check this out. 
I was like, wow, what a really good movie this was. And I loved it. I thought it had a great design. The soundtrack was awesome. Oh, yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. I've lectured on that. Um, Dolly, uh, oh, what is it? The, oh, God, the Dutch. Um, it's like the Dutch tilt that they do when they get off the bus. And then yeah, um, yeah it's just such an amazing scene. So, yeah, it's it's a really well done movie. Yeah. So, you know. We had all of this controversy that, you know, it sort of sprung from the internet, but then it also stayed on the internet because this was during a time when the internet and quote unquote real life were still separate. They had not really bled over and, and become inseparable at that time. But, um, you know, all of this was sort of sandwiched in between the, these two positive stories, one of them being Anit Kulnus' relationship with Harry Knowles. And the story of Pitch Black, you know, and Roger Ebert really did bring a lot of attention to Ain't It Cool News. When he brought Harry onto his show, um, I think that it was an interesting interaction because a lot of times, you know, the old guard in any industry, in any sort of medium, usually has some reservation about the new guard, about the new people, especially if they're using new technology or new approaches. But, um, Roger Ebert embraced Harry from the jump. Like he really did seem to be a su- not only supportive of his work as an online critic, but you know, we, we played that clip in the first or second episode of the show, like his whole stream of consciousness. This is my life. This was the movie I saw. This is what I thought approached to film criticism. Even that part, uh, Roger Ebert was supportive of. And I, what I was thought- the review that um, Harry claimed Roger Ebert was jealous of and said that he wished he could have written that. Which review was that? You know what? That's in the next episode. And let's, oh, let's... Sorry. sorry. No, no, it's a great tease. There is a, there is a review written by Harry that Ebert was a big fan of, according to Harry. Um, so we'll find out what that is in the next episode. That but, sounds uh, great. That's a great tease because we're, we're actually not going to play a clip from the next episode on this show. Okay, good. We'll keep all that under wraps. So watch or listen to find out. Yeah, listen to find out. It's really crazy. (laughs) But um, yeah, you know, I I was looking at into why Roger Ebert liked Harry Knowles and Andy Cool so much. And, you know, I talked to Gerald Perry, the director of the documentary For the Love of Movies, the story of American film criticism. And, you know, for time reasons, we weren't able to fit this into um, the fourth episode. But I thought his opinion on why Ebert might have really liked Harry um, was interesting. And and I'll tell you why, because, you know, I grew up as a kid watching Roger Ebert on television. And a lot of what I value and love about cinema is very much shaped by his words, where for Gerald Perry, Roger Ebert was a colleague. And so, you know, he sort of looks at him a lot differently, Um, not always through that same rose colored lens that you have when you look at someone uh, from when you're a kid, and, and this is what he said. You uh, interviewed Roger Ebert, and he had, um, you know, I, I think of all people, you know, he was one who had actually nice things to say about Harry. Right. You know, and I Well, yeah, he said nice things to say, but I think that's probably sometimes, I don't know how to say it, the, I think the worst sides of Roger Ebert is a kind of, super booster fan and also someone by the way another person who hollywood certainly courted like crazy was ebert um seeing himself a little bit in harry knowles 
they're not that different, at least the, the worst part of Roger Ebert. What do you think was the worst part of Roger Ebert? Well, I said that he was this sometimes kind of anti-intellectual fan of, of and a booster of stuff, but also in you know in love with his own power, and definitely really courted by Hollywood. I mean, I, I, mean, I went out in 1981. I was at a at the first Sundance um, Film Festival, not Film Festival, Sundance Institute when it started. And there was, the, and I was a reporter writing for American Film about it. And, and Ebert was there, and he was just like surrounded every minute by every Hollywood executive and director. And he was just making pronouncements all the time about this and that. And they're all shaking their head and and <clears throat> bowing before him. And he was also on panels. Whenever he was on a panel, he would just take over the panel and do all the talking. So, so there was a kind of egotist in there, which was a little like, though I said, uh, the best of Harry Knowles and the worst of Roger Ebert. <laughs> I can buy that. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. So um, going on, though, to this origin of Butnamathon and this crazy adventure where they where they broke the movie Pitch Black, you know, and it cool news tried many times. And I think they failed most of the time to promote smaller independent films, these indie films that were intimate character studies. Uh, but their knack was getting audiences to support low-budget indie horror and science fiction films. They brought a lot of heat and recognition and sometimes box office success to these movies that, you know, when we were kids, when I was a kid, would just be dumped into video stores. You know, you, you see low-budget science fiction films – that's their destination. And Pitch Black was definitely headed that way. And they managed to help turn that around. And, you know, in our last comment section, you know, you read this question from someone, actually a comment from someone who talked about how our C. Robert Cargill story about Vin Diesel was probably a lie. And, you know, I had to really hold my tongue. I wanted to say that, share all this information, but I I had to hold my tongue because I knew the story we we're going to share in episode four kind of explains why Vin Diesel was so familiar with Ain't It Cool and why he knew who C. Robert Cargill was. He knew everyone <laughs> um, with the site because they helped break him. They helped make him uh, the massive celebrity that he was. And I, yeah, I had to hold my tongue on that, but that that's ultimately the biggest reason. It was more than the fact that Vin Diesel's a nerd. It's that um, the site kind of helped put him on the map in some ways. Speaking of though, you know, after we put this episode out, I got an email from Steve Prokopi, who works for who worked for Anticool News, and he had interviewed he had tried to interview Vin Diesel for a movie. And the reason I say try is because he had a ten minute interview with him. That's how a lot of these movie junkets are set up. You've got ten minutes with someone, and then you're out the door. And so he had ten minutes with Vin Diesel, and Vin Diesel cannibalized. Um, almost half of this interview to talk about the, his experience about Numathon. And I just want to play that clip right now. So here you go. Steve, you've known me for so long. <laughs> People that work with me don't know me as long as you. Wow. Um, you predate almost everyone. Steve remembers when... <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Steve remembers when Pitch Black... When my, my 
My claim to fame was the Iron Giant. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. Which I just saw the new version the other day. Wasn't that cool? Oh, so beautiful. Yeah. Uh, there was a re-release, but yeah, yeah. I digress. Anyway, so <laughs> and before Pitch Black came out, it was just buzzing. No one had seen it yet. I think one person from Ain't It Cool News saw it and gave incredible reviews. Yeah. And they invited us to Austin, Texas. And it was the first time I was ever in Austin, Texas, <laughs> even though my biological father from anyway. Mm-hmm. And they did something called the Butnumathon. Was you know, they were essentially raising money. Um and the way they did it is you would go get sponsors and they would pay you according to how many hours you could sit in the movie theater chair. Up to 24. Up yes. to 24 <laughs> if you could do it and watch movie after movie after movie. And you had no idea what the movies were going to be. And you so. had no idea what the movie was going to be. And my movie came uh, maybe it was. midnight. Yeah, it was probably it was late. Yeah. It was late. Maybe midnight. Maybe eleven. Uh, maybe one o'clock. So at the, the halfway morning. point, right? It was raining. Yeah, I remember standing outside the back door <laughs> because I was going to be the surprise guest. Yeah. And I remember it raining. I'm sitting, standing outside, and I go in. Movie ends. I come up to the stage, <laughs> roar, and it's the first time I've, I ever saw. An audience respond to Pitch Black, yeah. the first character. This is before Fast and Furious. This is before Triple X, and that audience was in Austin. Yeah, and they gave me a plaque, which was of the Iron Giant. Yeah, as a gift, and I remember Guillermo del Toro was there. Was he? Yeah, I don't even remember it. That. It was okay. actually there in the yeah, audience. Yeah. It was like, oh, oh it's just watching, right? Just yeah, yeah, watching yeah, yeah. movies. Yeah. For diehard fans. <laughs> it was such a cool, very, by the way, a very pivotal moment in my life and a special moment in well, my life. Well, blew up right now. And I thank that, yeah. you. I yeah. thank you for, for doing that and having that. Yeah. Can I get one question about this oh, movie? God, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I just don't want to run out of time before I get I got to yeah, ask you at least yeah, one yeah, question yeah, about this movie. Okay, okay. I'm sorry. No, no. I, I love I, hearing I, that story. I, Believe me. I love hearing you tell it. I got lost down memory lane. That was beautiful. I, you know, that was beautiful. When I first heard that clip, it's like you could really hear the emotion in Vin's voice. Like, he seemed like he was a little emotional there. Like, he mm-hmm. was really reminiscing this moment where it seemed like it was the first time he got to be a star. Yeah, yeah, I definitely sense that nostalgia coming from him, right? He has fond memories of it, for sure. Before we jump to the questions, I do want to just reiterate to people that this chapter is the end of the rise. And I think some people left me with the impression that they wanted us to tell the story of Ain't It Cool News from the lens that they have now based on the ending. And and that sort of felt obvious to me. And I, I think it also prevented our ability to explore a lot of the other ways that Ain't It Cool News influenced our culture in ways that I think, honestly, a lot of them were not great, you know, and, and we're sort of living through this now. But I think beyond that, you know, one of the reasons I did what I did in the beginning where, you know, we sort of open with this prologue where I'm very much drinking the Kool-Aid in these memories I had of this website to, you know, just the story of how the site became what it was is I told all that because 
I felt it was important to convey the allure. What drew everyone to this site? And not only during its heyday, but really also during its decline, people still came to write for that site for free. Um, then people came to write even after the decline. It was, just, it was sort of in a slow, gradual death spiral. And then people continued to actually try to write for the site for free, even after the kill shot that was the accusations from multiple women of sexual misconduct in 2017. And if you don't get to the allure of that, you make all of these people seem crazy. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to be fair, there it was a little crazy to write this long for free. If you could, if you had the choice to do anything else, you might want to reconsider those choices. But <laughs> you know, if you don't understand why they were drawn to the site, why they thought this was a great place to be, then I think we just you just you sell them short. You make them look even like they've made an even worse choice from a bad choice to a worse choice. And I wanted to really explain you know, what brought all of these people to this website to work there. Um, you know, I think beyond that, you know, I had a conversation with one of the survivors and, you know, this person did not want to go on the record, but one of the reasons um, they really struggled with everything is because when they came forward initially, a lot of people thought they were crazy for ever being around Harry Knowles. They didn't understand why she would do that. And, you know, that's the other big reason I'm trying to sort of explore the allure of the site is because people had a reason for wanting to be there. You know, there, there wasn't, it wasn't a situation where people were making just purely bad choices I think people were well-intentioned. I think people were well-meaning. I think some people just got lost and got betrayed and got duped. And Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I mean, there were a lot of people who participated in this community. Um, you know, a lot of people that had very good intentions, a lot of people that were just excited to nerd out about movies, right? Um, and then things went wrong. And it's really interesting to unpack exactly what caused them to make poor decisions and cause the inevitable downfall of the site. Right. Um, I agree. Like, I think, I think, I mean, obviously I agree with you, right. I think it's good storytelling to, and also just from an ethical standpoint, I think it's just good to look at all sides of the story and all these different perspectives. So, yeah, but I, I, there were quite a few people that wanted you to kind of shame it from the start, but, um, I don't think that's giving giving everyone the justice they deserve, right? Yeah. I, I think beyond that too, it's, I think that, you know, the greatest wrong are these accusations and that's something that we need to explore and in the right context and in and the right will. time mm-hmm. and the right way. But then I think one of the things I, I also wanted to sort of analyze was sort of the cultural changes that occurred, mm-hmm. you know, and, I don't want to sort of mix the two sides, especially in the same episodes. You know, every episode sort of tackles a different layer leading to what happened in 2017. And, you know, I didn't want to talk about how film criticism was being harmed in the same episode that I'm talking about how multiple women were harmed. Right, right, right. That deserves an episode of its own. Yeah. We're going to go ahead, I guess, and jump into our questions and comments okay. and feedback. And it, we've got some really interesting ones this week. Yes. 
All right. So the first one um, uh, has a title. It says started out good, but turned into the woke cast. This was a, a review of ours on um, Apple Podcasts, right? Yes. Yes, it was. Um, so this person writes, I enjoyed the first two episodes, but then it turned into the usual white male are to blame for everything wrong in the world. Harry turned out to be a nightmare of a person, but to sling out the white male junk because of his actions is pointless. Otherwise, up to that point, it was a solid history of the site. I hope it gets back to the quality of the first two episodes and gives us the facts and insights of the people who were there and drops the opinions of the host just to show his wokeness. Hey, Chris, mm-hmm. how's about you respond to this one first? <laughs> sure. Um, so my question is, um, how can you not contextualize the people mm-hmm. that are participating in the site? Um, so Black Americans aren't able to avoid talking about their blackness or considering their blackness in the context of their interactions with others. So why should we give, you know, white dudes a pass for that? Um, So I I think the fact that the site was largely white and male really shaped its culture and the community, right? We have norms based off of our identity um, and we act a certain way based off of the media's portrayal of these norms, as well as what we learn from family, our families and other people. And so, of course, you know, the fact their masculinity and their whiteness shapes how they interacted. So um, I think we would not be looking at the whole picture if we avoided um, looking at that. But Joe, what would you like to add to that? I first want to say great response. And the only thing I would really like to add is that I would really, really hate to hear the non-woke version of this podcast. Right. God, especially dealing with sexual assault. You know, it'd be like making a true crime podcast about a homicide investigation, but not believing that murder is wrong. Right. Right. More to the point, you know, this comment speaks to a prevailing attitude. I notice sometimes when people talk about Ain't It Cool News and Harry Knowles, where they want to approach the story thinking that they are better than Harry Knowles without considering what role they play in this culture that Harry Knowles was a part of, as well as the culture that Harry Knowles created. You know, they just want to sort of ride parallel and say, you know, he was a bad person, but, you know, like this white male junk isn't a problem. Right. It's like that not all men comment, right? (laughs) Yeah. Which, of course, it's not all men. You know, of course it's not. But it doesn't mean that cultural perceptions of masculinity don't shape our actions and behaviors, right? So yeah. anyway, sorry, what were you going to say? You can't talk about it a systemic problem without right, talking exactly. about the system exactly. and the problem. Exactly. So. Yes. Yeah. All right. Um, so here's a question from Matt. Matt asks, who was Alexandra DuPont? That's the big mystery, isn't it, Joe? So yes. who, who was Alexandra DuPont? Do you have any information on that? I do not know for sure. <laughs> I've gone crazy trying to find out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, someone on Twitter once suspected that they thought it might be Karina Longworth, the host of You Must Remember This podcast. You know, and I've read articles written by Karina Longworth. I've read, I've read every article written by uh, Alexandra DuPont. There are some similarities there in, in their style. Um, you know, another hint that some people point to is that the avatars – 
Alexander Dupont had two different avatars, and both of those kind of look something like Karina Longworth. Um, but then I asked Drew McWeeny, is Karina Longworth Alexander Dupont? And he said, uh, no. He said no. <laughs> you know, it's like, do you, do you trust Drew McWeeny? Um, I feel like I'm supposed to now. Um, you know, at the same time, I did ask Jeremy Smith. And his response was interesting to say the least. So let, let's play that clip. Jeremy Alexander Dupont. <laughs> yes. Um, that's an identity that I think hasn't been given up. If, oh, yeah. Well, throw a name at me. I've heard a lot of different names. Um, some people are saying it's uh, the lady who created the You Must Remember This podcast, um, whose name suddenly escapes me, even though I've been listening to her podcast all day today. Um, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to say yes. I'm not going to give up the name. Uh, I, I know, but, uh, but I have met Alexander Dubon. Where can I find this person? Um, I, I can't, yeah, that's a, that's been given in confidence. I just, I can't expose that. Uh. Oh, oh, oh. So yeah, I don't know. Um, so who do you believe? <laughs> do you believe Drew or do you believe him? What do you yeah. think? Well, you know, he, he, he did not confirm or deny, but I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think it's interesting and the only thing I'll say again is that Alexander, if if you are listening, hit us up on social media at Download Pod or at our website downloadpod.com. And you know, even if it's just to say, "Hey, I'm never going to reveal who I am," <laughs> <laughs> it would just be cool to to know you're still alive and you're still out there, and to let you know that I thank you for your work. <laughs> All right. So our next question is from Andy. He says. Hey, Joe, loving the podcast. One question. How come there's no response from Drew on the amusements chapter just because he's on the record elsewhere? Just wondering. You know, I had one interview with Drew McGuini. First off, thanks for listening. But I had one interview with Drew McGuini. And, you know, it's sort of like, I don't know if some people are going to get this reference, but the super toy run on Nickelodeon where they were going to bring kids to a Toys R Us and give them five minutes to get everything they could out the door. And, you know, so I had this specific set amount of time to talk to Drew and ask him anything. And, you know, there was never a time where I asked him a question and he didn't give me an answer, but I ran out of time. And I, I think that was it. There was no retakes, no redos. He's like, I gave you the interview. That's it. And um, that was just something I didn't get to. But, um, you know, he did comment on it in as recently as 2018 on Twitter. And I'll, I'll read a little bit of what he said. He said, this is just a quote. When Harry Knowles told me he had read a script called Amusements that he thought was great and was going to write about it, I didn't tell him it was me. That was the relationship we had at the time. I was even hiding from him. So he reviewed it. That's when I told him the truth. He decided to leave it up. And years later, it bit us in the ass. People accused him of doing it to sell my work. And while that wasn't true, I was still wrong for handling it that way. Clearly, completely, it's not ethical. 
And when my name was finally outed in the public, I wigged out. I wigged out because it meant I was accountable for what I wrote. I wigged out because I couldn't hide from anyone anymore. Someone did it to destroy me. It didn't. It set me free. My best work came after I was accountable. And I'll, I'll end it there. He, it's actually a much longer um, thread. but So that, that was his response. I did want to. Glad you learned from it. That's that's a good take on it. Yeah. All right. Here's another question from MacReady. 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 Um, oh, MacReady. Okay. The R is capitalized, so it looked like MacReady. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. So Ooh. this person writes, "Hey Joe, just wanted to drop you a line that the Ain't It Cool News podcast is terrific. Hey. Keep it up, my brother." I know production is way harder than it looks. Can't wait for the next episode. Each episode has been better than the last. You're telling a great story and doing a great job. Thank you. Thank you. That was a a great kudos. You know, it it belies uh, one truth, which is that when I set out to make a narrative podcast, I'd never made a narrative podcast before. I'd never told a multi-part story in audio and I, I just went for it. And, you know, I didn't wait until I was good. I didn't, you know. And so when people are listening to the first episodes and they're saying, this part's not good, this part's not good, this part's not good. Like, I know these facts. You know, there, there were some learning moments there for sure. Um, hopefully boosted by my passion uh, for the material as well as my desire to do something I'd never done before. But, yeah, I think the reason each episode sounds better than the last is because each episode I bring lessons I learned from the previous episode. And I thank you McCready or Mac ready for, yeah. uh, for noticing. That was really cool. Thank you. Um, have you been listening to the Trojan affair? Um, you know, I've been so busy making a podcast that I haven't had, you haven't had time to listen. Yeah. I've only listened to the first episode. Um, but I like how, um, it very much reveals some of the challenges and mistakes that can happen when you're working on a podcast, right? Because it's a graduate student uh, paired up with um, Brian Reed. So, <laughs> the master of narrative. Right, the master, right? So um, maybe people will be more empathetic to our growing pains <laughs> because maybe. of that podcast. Let me dig into that one. All right. So the next question is from Daniel. Um, he actually has a couple questions. So the first one, are you the same Joe Scott with the popular YouTube channel? Do you have a YouTube channel that I don't know about, Joe? <laughs> no, uh, I am not. I, I know of, there's a couple of Joe Scotts who aren't me. I'm, I'm the least remarkable of the Joe Scotts. But uh, the alternate universe Joe Scotts include some sort of sports coach. Like he coaches a sports team of some kind. I think it's a like a college basketball team. I might be wrong. And then there there is a guy who posts sort of, I think, helpful sort of advice videos on youtube and um he has a much better voice than me and uh <laughs> that yeah. might be who he's referring to yeah um, i am not that joe scott i am the least remarkable joe scott <laughs> and for the record i am not Kristen bell i am christina bell so <laughs> much less exciting than if Kristen bell was helping you on the podcast <laughs> i feel like yeah of the two you know between you and me people who share names with other people um your doppelganger in name mm-hmm. only kind of has the edge on all right. of our other doppelgangers. Like Kristen Bell is awesome. Okay. So um, our next question is from Bill Bria. 
kind of astonished anyone could listen to this voice for longer than a minute at a time, let alone one saying this stuff. Oh my God, that's a little painful. I don't think your voice is painful to listen to, Joe. No, it's all good. I, you know, my voice is my voice. It's very unique and uh, it's all good. Um, thanks for listening, you know. And <laughs> thanks that's, for giving it a shot. <laughs> yeah, you know, my voice is what it is. You know, it's the voice I have, and at least I'm not trying to affect someone else's voice and the veneer of sort of the Yelpy radio guy. This is just how I talk. So, but thank you. Thank you, Bill. I think your voice is quite easy to listen to. There's some uh, people who speak so low that while I'm driving, their frequency is like matches the traffic noise outside. Um, But I think your voice kind of stands out. So, I quite like your voice, Joe. You know, in. An early, early draft of the very first episode I did, I tried to sort of read in a quiet, monotone, NPR style voice. And um, my partner's like, yeah, don't do that. Show your personality. Yeah. Yeah. You are who you are. And Mm -hmm. so, yes. Okay. The next question is from Noah. I'm listening to that podcast about Harry Knowles, and I'm genuinely appalled by how much influence he had over film culture. I wasn't in the know back then. This guy really is the author of all our pain. I feel you, Noah. (laughs) I also did not know that. Wow. Yeah. um, I'll say that we really do sort of dive into the author of our pain part in the next episode. That I don't want to spoil too much, but the culture. We're going to dive into cinema culture in the next episode. So Mm -hmm. uh, I look forward to hearing your thoughts on that, Noah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, And then I have one more from Katie Walsh, Walsh, (laughs) who just says Lorraine Bronco. Yes. Do you know that context? (laughs) I mentioned, you know, we were talking about Goodfellas. Oh, right. And um, someone copied a clip of us talking about Goodfellas. Um, I think they thought the comparison of – Harry Knowles, the Ain't It Cool News team during their heyday to uh, gangsters was uh, comparing them favorably, <laughs> you know, saying they weren't as good as the people in Goodfellas, which they were not good people. <laughs> the people in Goodfellas were not good yeah, people either. <laughs> but um, I mispronounced Lorraine Bronco's name. I oh. uh, I called her Bronco because oh. um, I had a head cold. And actually, <laughs> the interesting thing was. I had a hard time saying uh, Lorraine Bracco's name, but then I also really butchered the word comic book. I could not say comic book, which when you're talking about the story of Harry Knowles, like in every episode, the word comic book appears, but I would say comic book. I'm going to go comic book, comic book. And I didn't even want to look for it, but there is like 20 minutes of audio of me just trying to say the word comic book correctly. And uh, I finally just got fed up and you can hear me typing i'm retyping it to superhero movie it went from comic book movie <laughs> to superhero movie because i could not say comic book oh yeah you were sick it wasn't your fault yeah but you know it i'm glad someone listened that carefully and they, they caught me on it i definitely yeah. mispronounced this uh, wonderful actress's name my bad yeah no that's that's good feedback right there we can go ahead and jump into this interview and you know When we brought Patrick on to the show, he's a pioneer in a lot of ways because one of the things he did was he created internet movie news websites. He was a pioneer in that way. But I think another way that Patrick Sorrell was a pioneer is he was one of the first people to not like Harry Knowles. You know, he was way ahead of the curve on that. You know, a lot of people don't like Harry Knowles today, but um, Patrick Sorrell did not like Harry Knowles in the 90s. 
So I talked to Patrick and sort of got an interesting th- an interesting topography of internet culture in the mid to late 90s, but then also just we delve a little deeper into the relationship that he had with Harry. And this was all stuff I couldn't fit into the show, but I thought it was a remarkable conversation. And I'm glad that we have these sort of bonus episodes where I'm sort of catching my breath to, uh, you know, keep the show running. I think this is a great opportunity just to learn about the origins of internet movie culture. Uh, Another interesting piece about it too, is that, you know, when he launched his site, uh, he could only focus on 12 movies. You know, and now that we have so many sites, it still feels like we can only focus on 12 movies. Like (laughs) the roster of movies did not get bigger. And, um, (laughs) you know, he didn't have the best technology at the time. So I don't blame him, but I do blame us that we can't use technology to expand the number of films that we talk about online and, and to do it in a way that attracts readers. And I hope that we can one day evolve as a film culture to do more than just talk about what seems like a handful of movies over and over. Well so, said, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy. So how did you, how did you first sort of become aware of the internet? Uh, I was one of the early people. I was, when I was like, Ooh, 12, 13 years old, my my dad had bought me a computer and I got an online. So this is like the early 80s. And back then, um, you would you would call up you would call up like bulletin boards and uh or you would get onto Usenet. And so I was kind of like a little bit of that culture. If you looked at like war games, like what that kid was doing in that movie, it was a little bit of that. Um and so I found it really interesting. I love technology. It felt like I was on the cutting edge of something. Uh, and I love the idea of being able to talk and find out, you know, connect to people that were not in your, your, your neighborhood. Um, and so I, I started doing that. I, I launched my own bulletin board in 1984. I was 14 years old. I had that going. I was doing that for a number of years. Uh, and then the, you know, I was always sort of into the tech scene and stuff like that. But then I graduated high school and started doing writing, um, doing scripts, trying to send them off to Hollywood to get the notice of people. I really also wanted to write comic books. So I was sending off pitches and going to San Diego Comic-Con and I was saving money and working at this crummy job to self-publish a comic book and I had these aspirations of trying to break in. And then I saw an ad in the paper um, saying, uh, there's this person that wanted to start a video game company and he wanted to look for writers. So I met with him and it turned out he was moonlighting. He was a computer programmer. Uh, He was putting together a bunch of other programmers and artists. And so I connected with him and we started working on this video game concept. This is around 93, 94. And he said to me, well, we should have a website. We should get a website. I'm a programmer. I can get it up and going. Um, But I don't know what would be on that website. Why don't you write something, Patrick? And I said, well, what what am I going to write about? He says, just write whatever you want. So... I started writing about movies and that's how I connected with the internet. I was, I already was online before I had computer at home and, you know, modems and stuff like that. But that was my first real foray into like actually having real estate online besides the bulletin board I had as a teenager. So 
you've inspired two questions here, and, and the first one I'll ask is, um, what was the internet? What was the movie, the online movie community like before uh, websites like yours? Uh, there was there was this thing called Usenet where you would have, and there were like, uh, it's a lot like Reddit was, where you would have these forums uh, where people could connect to the internet and then talk to other people who usually were, you know, tech savvy. And they would talk about like movies or, or RPGs or, or things like that. And people would share information. I remember at the time in the early nineties, uh, one of the things that stands out was there was a Star Wars Usenet forum and they were talking about this legendary screenplay uh, for episode three, Star Wars. And it was written by a guy called John Flynn, who just did it um, as a joke. He loves Star Wars and just threw it out there on the internet. And some people thought it was real and other people said, no, it's this legend, it doesn't exist. And some people were like, yeah, I read it or I know a guy that read it or whatever. And, and you would have all these weird rumors floating around on there. And like people would contribute a little bit here and a little bit there. It's like, looking at a, a giant elephant and you're blind and you're trying to describe what it is to people. And somebody would say, yeah, I, I know somebody that was like, you know, went to school with this guy and this is what's going to happen or whatever the case is. So it was a, it was a melting pot of like 90% fans talking to each other about movies and 10% like national Enquirer type of stories. <laughs> so just people getting on there and making up complete total bullshit. Yeah, I suppose some of it would be bullshit. But I, I mean, I, I also suppose there were things like, you know, people who were, um, uh, you know, went to Comic-Con or you actually got stuff signed by people or had encounters with people uh, would, would put stuff on there too. Um, back in the early 90s, I mean, that's where uh, Michael Straczynski from Babylon 5, he he found his audience on there. He found his tribe and was promoting Babylon 5 before it was even on the air. So he was learning about and, and educating people about the lore of his, what they call lore now on YouTube videos. He was doing that before the, the TV show was on the air. So there were some legitimate people, but nothing like the way it was. It was still very, uh, it was still very much a gatekeeper. You had to like know a bit of computer skills to get online. There was definitely a crowd there and and they were very you know fun and friendly and but it felt very much like it felt like the D, &D club from high school like that type of thing like it's it's this outsider group and what you're doing with computers and information just seems geeky and nerdy and that was the gatekeeping to it at least that's the way it looked like from my position i guess the follow-up i had this second question you sort of helped inspire was you know you have to really educate me i was born in 1980 so i'm asking you this I, I because i don't know but i'm led to believe that before coming attractions there were movie sites but they were almost like fan sites devoted to a specific movie i i i do remember there were some fan sites out there for movies because i would link to them on on the pages i had for movies uh, and I would include them at the bottom. And there were ones for, for, for actors as well, too. Um, but there was nothing that was a melting pot of all the information that was gathered about movies that weren't released yet. 
you know, or, or were rumors. There wasn't anything like that. You know, there was a lot of experimental stuff at the time. There was, there was Wired magazine was, was, you know, tackling, it was kind of like going from the weird 80s, late 80s cyberpunk, you know, movement with like Blade Runner and Max Headroom and what are computers doing and, and, and what's going to happen and those VR and all that stuff. And then it was actually getting into the 90s and people realizing eh, all this cool stuff isn't going to happen just yet. It's going to take time for the technology. But people were still writing about it. It was a really fun time. I remember, I just remember that the biggest feeling I had was the internet's going to change things up in a big way because I mean, I was thinking like 20 years, like what's going to be, you know, someone's going to have access to information. They're going to put it online. I mean, social media is proof of that. I didn't know what social media would could be, but I knew that somebody someday, like if somebody had access to something happening where they are, they could publish it instantly and they could affect the world. And I thought that was like, I, I felt like I, I felt very cool in being one of the people that, that felt like this giant wave was going to come in and change things around. Um, and then when it started exploding in 95 and it started getting on the cover of time and the internet became ubiquitous and people were mentioning it, um, it felt like you were kind of like, you had a little bit of a head start because you saw the wave coming in. Maybe you were practicing surfing. I read, um, you know, I, I tried to do as much research as I could going in this. And I read, one of the things I read was that when your site initially launched, it wasn't so much like a broad movie news page as it was like a movie news page devoted to 12 different movies. Do you remember what those movies were? Um, I remember one was uh, Star Wars 1. Uh, I remember Toy Story being one because that was, I kind of picked like the ones that were like, you know, kind of in the... Um, the zeitgeist you know people were talking about like toy story was one of those like ooh, there's going to be like a computer generated movie you know um and then star wars was just like that was like the rumors i was talking about the john flynn you know screenplay and all that stuff um i had those those were ones i i like to think i mean this is probably could be I, I could probably dig it out and find out what the other 10 are i like to think one of them was um I think one of them was a Captain America movie because there was always, you know, talks about like a Captain America movie happening. Um, and I think another one was Alien 4. Yeah, Alien 4 was another one too. So it was, it was kind of like, it was kind of like, you know, the, a little bit of the franchises that are what around the today that still people talk about. You were the first site that really uh, became a news site, like a news in movie news in general. And I guess you guys ran scoops, so you broke stories. Um, what kind of people sent you the scoops? It, it was, it's cool. So like I, I originally started with these 12 movies and I took all the information that I've been reading about in newspapers and, you know, you, you see like 30 seconds on Entertainment Tonight or, or whatever the case is. Or you remember like a, room, a rumor that was like, you know, a couple of years ago. And so I started compiling it on these pages. And... I remember just launching that and then some people were saying, oh yeah, I remember reading uh, an issue of Fangoria where they talked about this and, 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 you know, fine, great. And then I, there was two things that I remember happening. One was, one was the Toy Story page because 
people from Pixar read it and then started sending me information about other movies. They sent me stuff about Bugs Life. And they were talking about how they met at the cafe to come up with these six or so other ideas. The cafe right across the street from where Pixar was. And they were, they were telling me these little bits and pieces like, oh, you should get a page for a Bugs Life on. You know, it's like, okay, what's that? Um, and, it, you know, I, I remember doing it and that's how I got launched a page for it. And then I remember like some people, like, I don't know, like just an average citizen took some photographs and scanned them into a computer and sent them to me of somebody filming something in their backyard or in their, in their like not backyard, but their, uh, their hometown, their city. And that's another way where I got a page on there and I, and I launched it. And sometime between that and like 96, screenwriters, uh, producers, agents started sending me these things. And I got the feeling that they were the first people that were online too. Some people actually came out and said, hi, I'm so-and-so, you know, this is who I am. Uh, and this is what I know. Some people used pseudonyms and I had to, I had to hold back on scoops or I had to put stuff up and say, you know, take this with a, a, a pinch of salt. Um, and I sort of figured out who they were after some time. Uh, some people I never really figured out. Um, but it was, a, it was a really, it was a straight, it was a fun thing when you got an email and you just like, holy crap, I'm talking to this person. You know, that was fun. And even not like just a famous person, but just people that were working in the industry. And that's what I, what I really liked. What I, what I found out I really liked was the business side of it. Like the stories, like, you know, why did this version of the script not go to the, what was made in the movie? What happened with this casting decision, right? Um, like one of the most famous like trouble productions is Alien 3. So it started off with this idea that, you know, they released like a, a teaser trailer in 92 where like, you know, it, it was heavily implied the aliens coming to earth. And then like a year later, the movie comes out and it's like, okay, it's not on earth. We've killed off everybody else except for Ripley. And here's the movie we got. And there's so much that's been written about the trouble of production. And, you know, that to me was really fascinating. I really liked finding out, you know, like, okay, we're going to, Alien 3 is coming out on, in May 1992. We have Sigourney Weaver for six weeks of filming. I don't care if we have a script. We need to shoot something. Like that's, that's the reality of how these things are made. And, and, and it's, it was a lot like I got, I got a really, I look back now and I feel like I got a lot of like film school out of it, you know, like, like real Hollywood. Here's how the sausage is made, <laughs> you know, like insight into that stuff. Um, and in some ways it's, it's kind of really bummed me out of a lot of movies. <laughs> I don't watch a lot of movies these days. Well, I mean, once I developed relationships with these people, they were starting to tell me stuff like, I can't, you can't talk about this because my job's on the line or I can't because I get it from someone else. But here's, here's the other side of the story. And that was a really weird experience too, where it, it came from me just posting stuff online to me developing relationships so I could cultivate them. And then when I had good sizable scoops, I could get exclusives. But also there were times where I started becoming friends with these people and I couldn't talk about things I knew because 
you know, uh, I just very much strongly believed in having some sort of journalistic, you know, approach and style to this. Can you share any of the more uh, famous people that were uh, your sources? I can. I mean, I, it's been 20 years, so I don't think they're going to, it's going to matter. Um, I mean, John Favreau was one of the guys, you know, I like, I, he was online early and he seemed like a really, you know, he was, he was, he seemed like a good guy, good egg. Um, Guillermo de Toro. I remember Guillermo reaching out to me when I got a scoop about um, an offer had been made to Selma Blair to be in uh, the first Hellboy movie. And it had come from somebody who was negotiating and it hadn't come from his circle. And he emailed me and he said, um, you're right. I can't talk anymore about it. But when you post stuff like this up, it probably makes it harder for us to do the deal because now they see like there's a bit of negotiation involved. And I understood that a bit more when the X-Men movie got made because there was so much people talking about Patrick Stewart would be a good Professor X. His uh, agent used that to get a higher salary. So, you know, in the early days of the internet, the people who were aware of what they could do would leak stuff out to try and push things in their own way, you know? But that it's like that for everything, right? Um, yeah, Favreau, uh, Del Toro. Um, there were there were some other. There was a lot of screenwriters. A lot of, I think a lot of writers were just online because they're at a computer <laughs> and they don't want to write. Um, uh, there's other producers. I, I I'm a bit more hesitant to talk about uh, because they've never really. I mean, they never really come out and said anything. Um, there were people involved with like New Line, uh, Michael DeLuca, who is the president of production um, and who is now a producer on, on several films. He was, a, he was a very cool guy. And Do you think that when the uh, studios began to sort of weaponize you guys, that in some ways they also deactivated you guys? Uh, yes, because that's what you do. You build relationships with people and then, you know, you pull back on things, you know, it's like uh, Hannibal Lecter and Silence of the Lambs, quid pro quo, Clarice, you know. Um, I, I always walked a very fine line and there were times I had to put information on my site that was uncomfortable to people who had become friends. And I would give them a heads up and I would say things. And, and I, it's not like I would publish everything I would get. There were some things that I did not publish at all. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, I, got, I, remember, I remember checking my email on a Sunday afternoon and I was being told that Linda Hamilton was moving out of the house that she shared with James Cameron. And they were yelling and screaming at each other. And it was from one of the movers who was moving her things out of the house. And then two days later, there was this story about he them having a divorce, right? That type of personal stuff, no. Just never, never, never dump that stuff online. If it was, if it had to do with the, the production, it was fair game. So, you know, if people leave, if there's a budget disagreement, if there's a shutdown in production, if there's leaked photographs that the studio didn't want you to see, that was fair game. And 
I would publish that stuff on there, including script reviews. Script reviews were another thing too that, that the studios didn't like. Um, I felt, I felt mostly comfortable with the, the, the official studio dealings I had because I felt in my own way, I wasn't going to violate what I felt was my own personal journalistic ethic code. Like, you know, pull something down. We don't like it, Patrick, and we'll blacklist you or something like that. Nothing like that ever happened to me. Um, and at the same time, I remember talking to studio people and saying to them, look, there's good things that have come out from this as well. You know, like you win, you win one here, you lose one there with, with a story. The only one I felt really uncomfortable about was when I got a phone call from uh, the publisher of Battlefield Earth, which is owned by Scientology. They only published like one book or two books, which is like Dianetics and Battlefield Earth by L. Ron Hubbard. And I remember getting a phone call from the guy who was the president of the company because there were bad reviews. There were, there were bad early reviews or test screening reviews of Battlefield Earth on my page. And he was calling me up just like, hey, what's going on with those reviews? And I'm like, well, I'm publishing them. You know, like that's what it's about. Yeah, but why are you published? Like he was very, it was kind of like, he just wanted to let me know that they were watching me. That's the feeling I got from it. Um, and I just said, look, I mean, if somebody sends a positive review in of a test screening, I'll run with it, okay? It's, it's the way it is, right? But that was the only one that, that, that felt very weird. I, I, I also think that it, it, it made a difference sending out that vibe to people about what is appropriate and what's not appropriate. You know, like uh, what I would do and what I would not do. Um, so I think, I think they also got the sense of that from me too. I was never asked to like, you know, tank a movie or put up a fake review or anything like that. For, 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 for what I remember, it was all very, it was pretty fair and just on both sides, at least. Did uh, Dave Miscavige uh, send any uh, Scientology agents to your house or anything? No, 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 nothing like that. I, I mean, you had heard about, you know, how Scientologists play hardball back in, in the 1990s. And, and, you know, for a moment there, I was kind of like, really, this is going to happen with movies. But then what happened is Battlefield Earth came out and it was so universally bad. Like, it didn't matter what a little website said six months earlier. It was, it was, by that point, the the horses were gone and, and nothing came from it. Um but it's it was it's like I said I've had you know a couple of interactions where people have were were upset where they told me like you know money was on the line or a contract or you know this could impact negotiations and things like that and I just I said this is the way it is that's you know what are you gonna do right do you make any enemies <sighs> I'm sure I did but I don't remember anybody ever saying I'm going to be your enemy and take you down. The way I look back on it, I had far more friendly interactions and opportunities than anything negative. Nothing, nothing stands out to my mind. The only thing that comes close was um, uh, the beef between me and Harry that happened around 2000. So let's, uh, let's talk about Harry a little bit. So, you know, in his book, you know, he talked about his Usenet days 
and he said that um, your site once printed a scoop he had shared on a Usenet forum. And um, what what's your side in all of this? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it was. What I remember is either I, someone had sent me this story that he had published or it was Harry himself. I can't remember which one it was, but that's an example of, of, of you hear stuff. And I think it was for the Star Wars thing. It was for, I think it might've been for episode four because the special editions were being worked on around that time. Um, but yeah, he, he, I remember he emailed me and he was a bit upset, but I didn't know why. And I remember my version of events was he was credited with it on, on the page for Star Wars 4, the special edition. So to my mind, it was like, not a big deal. Just let it go. Uh, you know, like, oh, not let it go, but it was just like, it's done. It's like, whatever. Um, you know, and then like in 96, he launched Ain't It Cool News. I think Dark Horizons came out. Uh, I can't remember if it was before. 97. It might be 97. Yeah. Okay. Um, but that's what I recall from, from the first interaction. That was my first uh, conversation with him. Didn't know who he was until that point. So, uh, what was your opinion at that time? Like how, how did that strike you? Like what, how would you characterize that interaction? I mean, he, he came across like I was trying, I, I felt like he was being disrespected a, a little, I wouldn't say like he was outright like, Hey, you know, you're an asshole or whatever. But I think he was, he just felt like a little bit of his shine had been taken away from it. And again, this is like, you know, more than 20 years ago. Um, but to me, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, I've had, I've had way worse emails, <laughs> you know, like, it, and if something was wrong, I had no problem with going in there and saying, you know, here's what, here's what the other person has to say, or here's the follow up or whatever. I mean, I've done that for dozens of entries on pages on that site. So to me, it wasn't that big of a deal. You know, I mean, you get credit, you get credit. That's fine. It's not a big deal. Move on. When did you first discover any cool news and, and what did you think of the site uh, in its early days? Uh, around 96, I think it was around Independence Day coming out. I had seen some early stuff, some conceptual work for Independence Day. And I, th I said, this is going to be a big movie because there hasn't been like a war of the world's the world gets blown up by aliens in a, in, in a long time. So I had the feeling it was going to be a good success. Um, when I first came across Harry's site, I, I was not a fan of the way he was writing about stuff. Um, it, it, what I would say is like, maybe it was more the proto blogging style of writing, which is more establishes, you know, first person here's, Here's, here's my journey of the story. You insert yourself. It's, it's, you know, maybe it's more of what Hunter Thompson was doing back in the seventies. Right. Um, and to me, I, I came across from the more report, report the story as close to the truth as you can. I, I felt that was really important. And I realized that like you mentioned earlier, like, you know, I knew that people could be playing games with me. I know somebody could might be trying to sync production or float their script. So I had to be very careful about the way I presented things. And if I was 
if I had double confirmation, if I knew the person, if I knew the situation, um, I needed to give more of that information when I published the story. So I approached it very much like, like I was a quasi journalist. And I felt like that was a, that was the way that the information should be done because there was a responsibility that people's livelihoods were online. I grew, now that I'm thinking about it more, that's the way I was feeling at the time. Like I, I felt like there was a responsibility to make sure you got this information across as fairly and, and as unbiased as possible. Even if it's like someone who's presenting a screening that they went to and they hate the movie or they love the movie, you still have to say this is one person's report, you know? Um, and I just felt like that was the biggest difference I had between me and Harry and the way he approached it, just, it was like, you know, rubbing the wrong way. It was just the wrong, like we had two different modes of thought. We were both doing the same thing, but his way was like going right. My main was going left. So that was the difference between the two of us. And so I was a fan of him breaking information and I loved seeing new stuff on there. And if he had exclusive scoops, I would put it on my page for those films and I would credit him all the time for that. But I would do that for everybody that was breaking information at the time. Um, so, but that's, that's just the way it was at the time. And then it got more over, like that was around 96. And then over the next couple of years, it just got more and more painted as rivals. And it was almost like, it was almost like, I got the feeling from Harry, like he was, he was really trying very hard to be the face of the online movie website uh, audience. When in fact there was like, you know, five, 10 sites by that time, you know, that were, that were contenders and breaking things in a lot of ways. Um, and the other thing too is like at the time, I remember saying this because I got interviewed by Premier Magazine just before X-Men came out in 2000. And they interviewed me and Harry and I think a couple other people. And I remember one of the things that stood out to me is when they introduced me, the first thing they said was, don't call Patrick Soriel a geek. Because that was, that was a big thing for me. It's like, this shouldn't be nerdy stuff. It's like, this is, you know, it's, it's an actual bit of reporting. So what if it's got to do with superheroes or whatever? I mean, it's legit business, right? I mean, it's not just movies. This is millions of dollars and there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on with this, you know, like real legitimate stories. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't like, you know, being framed like that, but I mean, that's also the media. They want to put everybody in a box so they're easy to present to people right i mean everybody experiences that problem when you get to be known you know and i'm like at the bottom echelon of of fame there's people that are actors that are like boxed all the time right yeah but yeah i mean that's i, I just remember it getting it was there was a couple of like it almost was like a bit of a cold war thing happening where like you know i was russia or i was the u.s and we kind of like bumped and clashed and then it came to a head in 2000. So let's uh, let's dive into that. What happened? What what ignited this beef? So what happened was one of those relationships that I developed over the years. 
a person that I knew on a first name basis, I knew exactly who they were and what they had done, gave me uh, a gold scoop and told me, I mean, <laughs> it's so minor now, right? But he told me that um, Jimmy Smith's was going to be in Star Wars Episode 2 and possibly Episode 3, but for sure Episode 2. And he's going to play uh, the mother of Princess Leia. And so back then, like, Star Wars is big again. This is 2000. Uh, Phantom Menace had come out the year before. And the sites have evolved, and they're all kind of, like, breaking exclusives, you know? And, like, Hollywood can't control us. So I know where this comes from. I trust this person 100%. They told me where they got the information, which I could not divulge, but it helped alleviate my concern. Um, and I also realized if I divulged that information, somebody would have been in a hot water. So I published the information on my site and I just stated the facts and that's fine. And it was a big deal. And it, it got played by the force.net and all the other sites were picking it up. Um, and then what happened was Harry or Harry's dad, I can't remember, I think it was his dad maybe, I think it was his dad, published the information on their site. Because what happened is like at that time, when you had a big exclusive, you would send it out to the other webmasters because you, you started knowing each other, right? It's like, hey, heads up, we just published this story. So then I can go, okay, Chud just broke this story or Dark Horizon just broke the story. I'll put it on my site, there you go, done. So this was a big story. And I remember sending that off to like the webmasters and it got published in any cool news. And the problem was that whoever wrote the story made it sound like I was running it by them for their approval and permission to run the story or break the scoop. It was kind of unclear. Like they were the gatekeeper of the information. And, and, and that's what I was asking for permission. Like almost maybe they knew about it. And it, it, it very much felt like it was downplaying coming attractions. And so there had been some run up to this with other stories as well. And other people had been other webmasters. I'm going to say other people, other webmasters had voiced similar problems. So I wrote an email and sent it out to the webmasters, except for Harry. And then the webmasters that felt the way that, I did that Inicle was downplaying or ignoring stories that they felt were important, uh, signed the email and, and, and I sent it off to Harry and he published it on his site. And so Harry played a game of, of, of PR where he published the email on his website and then said, you know, I'm going to refute all of this and here's what I feel about it. And I felt he was doing some spin control, but, what it, what it really kind of turned into when he did it that way is that he, he took something that I was hoping would be private and he made it public so he could launch, like nowadays it's an attack campaign, right? If, if somebody pisses you off, you let your Twitter followers know or you put your blog, you put it on your blog and then they go out and attack or dox the people. And so that happened to me where people were like, ah, fuck him. And it's, she's just jealous and, you know, who's this and blah, blah, blah. And it was like a, a lot of angry, you know, upset uh, comments. And I felt like, no, the point is that there should be some sort of code of ethics that we follow 
uh, all our webmasters. Like, let's try and follow something where, you know, I'll, like a rising tide floats all boats. So let's follow in a partnership. And then that way, you know, I believe that we're going to have less. It's not us against us. It should be us against, you know, we're breaking this information. We're a new source of, 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 of data, you know, and this was, this is exciting stuff. And it's more like us against this, the established studio way of doing this. Um, and Harry, I felt was trying to very much to try and own the face of what was the online movie community. And he, and he, he came across like that in that. So that I felt like, dude, that's just a shitty thing to do. And I don't like it. And I think you played this wrong. So I think that that was for me, it was just like, okay, I'm not going to bother and try and let you know about stuff. I'm not going to be, I'm not, you know, like we went to a panel that summer for X-Men and it was a big deal at the time. I mean, this was a big, like people wanted a fight. They wanted to have blood and it was, it was his group against my group. And in San Diego, we had a panel where we had like one of the producers of X-Men, we had Kevin Smith and it started off with right away like you know let's talk about like harry knowles and what he's doing um you know that's that's fucking up the internet because film thread have also had also published an article a really 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 um scathing Exhausted. article yeah yeah and 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 took him to town because there were other people that were upset with harry getting invited to sets and meeting with people and then giving really positive reviews for films and that wasn't my beef my beef was with the way he presented this my scoop right but other people were putting all of this together they were all jumbling it all together and saying this is what ain't it cool is and 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 you know why we need to attack it and and you know what they're doing wrong and I, certainly there were parts of it i felt were wrong and i wanted to say my piece on them and i wanted to get some acknowledgement or an apology from Harry about the way he was, you know, slighting my site and, and, and what it was contributing to the, to the, to the scoop scene. Um, but it turned into a lot of other things. And I also didn't like the fact, I didn't like the fact that he was an easy target because he's, he's like the stereotype of the comic book guy from the Simpsons overweight, you know, he's got like loud t-shirts. Uh, he's very passionate and very, you know, geeky about his love for these things. Um, do I feel he goes too far? Yeah, I don't like the way he writes about stuff. But I also, I also felt like I didn't want to be that guy who's a bully and take a swing at him, you know? And I wanted, I wanted to try and if I was going to make a defense or an attack, I was going to base it on, on, on what I felt happened to coming attractions because I had writers working for me. We had people that, that worked hard um, getting these scoops and, and breaking the information. And so that's, that's how it never satisfactorily resolved itself because Harry didn't want to acknowledge what the central problem was, at least from my view, view about that. And then San Diego Con made it worse. There were a couple of interactions I had with him leading up to that too. And I did get, you know, the sense like a lot of this stuff is going to his head 
And he's not a guy I would want to hang out with. He's a guy that knows a lot about film, but he's not, he's not the type of guy that I want to talk about, like, you know, aliens or, or, or Star Wars with, right? We come from two different point of views about, you know, loving movies, at least at that time, right? Um, yeah. Well, you know, if you look at his site, his site, you know, puts him, his face, a cartoon of his face uh, at the masthead. He is the only person who gets to write on that site as himself. Everyone else is given like a nickname. And so in the way that's made up, he he really created a system where he got credit for everyone's work. Because you can't credit Moriarty if you don't know who D- Drew McQueenie is. You can't credit Quint if you don't know who Eric Vespi is. Like these are imaginary people. They could be Harry pretending to be someone else. That thought crossed my mind sometimes, uh, except for the fact that Drew McWeeney was a m- far superior writer. Yeah, uh, it's it's it, it was. I mean, now I'm remembering a bit about this too. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was a. I mean, there's pros and cons to this, and and let me let me point out the pros. I think because this is the early days of the internet. I think what Harry did by putting himself as the face of Ain't It Cool was much more smarter in a business sense than what I did with coming attractions. Coming attractions is like Wikipedia. There's no face to it. It's an entity, right? So here I am with ambitions where I want to be a screenwriter and I want to go into other things too. If I had put my face in coming attractions, I think more of those doorways would have opened. I really do. Um, but I felt very uncomfortable doing that, you know? Um, so it was a different path that I chose to do. Harry went down that route and put himself at the face of it. And I think had he been a, more savvy and more grounded and more uh, less ego-driven, he would have been a producer in Hollywood. But he he went too far and there's you know there's lots of things that have come out about harry like um you know the sexual assault charges right or him groping women um that's what i mean it's like he had he he knew wisely what to do before the template for being a personality and an online influencer was even verbalized he knew that but he went too far he was too greedy he wanted too much and he he operated the wrong way i think if he like i said if he had been a little bit more grounded down to earth or maybe someone had kept him in check he would be you know on the level of like you know kevin smith or or something like that you know where where you came from the internet and you broke into the movie scene because i know that's what he wants to do i know that's what a lot of us wanted to do i know I mean, Nick from Chud wanted to do that. Uh, I know the guys from Coming Soon wanted to do that. I'm not sure if Garth had any ambitions to do that. I know I wanted to, uh, and I know Harry wanted to, and 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 a lot of his writers remain in Cool News. Um, but that's that was, I think, what's happened. If I look back over the last 20 years, his downfall has come from from not from being too greedy 
and wanting and wanting things on his own terms. At least that's what it looks like from my perspective, thousands of miles away from him. So what would you say is an example of his greed? Well, I mean, the, the thing that, I mean, I think if you look at the heart of the problem that happened in 2000, that is characteristic. It's like downplay somebody else and it's like, oh, this, this scoop, it's not that big, you know? It's, it's only big because we're presenting it to you. We have to present it to you. Um, you know, uh, of wanting to be the story of everything. He wants to be at the, he wants to be the, 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 the sun at the center of the solar system for movie news. At least that's the, what it looked look very much like at in 2000. And again, in some parts, that's fine. Everybody should be trying and making, you know, their livelihood in some type of way, but not when it steps on other, you know, other initiatives or, 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 or the, or the, um, the, 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 the foundations of what other sites like coming attractions or myself were trying to do. I didn't want to be lumped in and looked at, you know, that we're all these guys that are just like, slavering over movies and if if a hot actress appears on the screen we're going to be like ah that's oh that's so much or here's the next tie fighter prototype oh my god i'm gonna have an orgasm why can't we just enjoy some of these things and we don't have to act like we're we're, we're you know 14 year old you know guys from a basement <laughs> that was the biggest thing to me i wanted to be professional about this you know, um, and again, again, I now that I'm talking about this, and it's been 20 years, that's like what I was saying about not just with Harry, but also in, in the premier article, and the way that I chose to approach writing coming attractions, I felt like I wanted to give it some sort of credibility, you know, like some sort of, yeah, I wanted, to, you know, now that I'm, I, I think that I'm most comfortable with that, I wanted to have it, a face of credibility about this stuff. It wasn't just us gushing over, here's Tobey Maguire in the Spider-Man suit, or here's Chris Evans in the Avengers. It was, we can also be, you know, smart, mature, critical, observant. And I felt like that was just completely being lost. Do you feel like Harry had kind of sucked a lot of the oxygen out of the room in terms of the conversations that uh, traditional media outlets were having about um, internet movie news? It's a funny question. I think if you had asked me that from 2000 to 2005, I would say yes. From 2006 to today, I would say no. And the reason why is because, I mean, I was, I was, I was, I was very much in the, 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 the eye of the hurricane. I was in that scene with my own sight and my own ambitions and running a business and all of that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I wanted, I wanted, I had, I had aspirations for what I wanted the image to be online and for myself and all those things. And did I feel like some doors were being closed or the conversation was only focused about this aspect? Yes. Um, you mentioned Chris Gore. Um, it looked like, he and Harry really got into it in a, in a really bad way. What was your perspective? Uh, 
you know, you just sort of had your own confrontation with Harry, but, you know, sitting on the sidelines sort of watching that unfold. Well, I don't remember, I'm trying to remember that big extensive article that wasn't written by Chris. It was somebody else who did it, but Ron Wells, Ron Wells. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Part of what happened with my site was in there, but there were also other things as well. They were talking, now that I'm thinking back on this, they were talking about the reviews, weren't they? In the early part of that article. Yeah, I mean, the article was, I mean, it was journalism. It was journalism about the internet, about an internet influencer. Um, And it was very unflattering. And, you know, I know, I, I felt like Harry was embarrassed by it, but instead of instead of trying to examine himself or explain himself and try to you know uh extend an olive branch he doubled down on this is the way i am that's it and at least that's the feeling i got from it um i i know chris i haven't talked to him in years but i mean if i wanted to talk to him i'm sure i'd be able to talk to him I got along with Chris a lot better. Chris is also a little bit volatile in some ways, but he's very passionate about independent film. Um, and he was he was really upset with, he, he was like, when I talked about the tribes, there were two tribes, he was in the Coming Attractions tribe. He was pissed off as a fan of Coming Attractions. And he was, he was the one that, you know, not him, but there were other people too, but he was the one that's like, yeah, you know what? get pissed off, Patrick, take a swing at this guy, you know? And I, I felt like I was pulling back. I was trying to state my case, but I also felt, you know, people wanted blood. They wanted to see, you know, the USSR and uh, America go to war, you know? And I just thought at the end of the day, how is this going to help us? How is this going to, like, people aren't going to care about this, but you know, nowadays they might care about a fight. Nowadays they might care about fights a lot more. Online feuds are kind of a thing. You know, yeah, you get yeah. clicks from that. Um, I know that I'm happy I didn't go down that road. So that was my choice. But getting back to your original point, yeah, the article, I think it's good to have examination from others outside sources. So I think from that point, the Film Thread article did a great job. I remember it also being a little bit, uh, it was a little first person. Like if I remember correctly, like Ron was also pissed off too and it came across in the article. But I also remember that he he had people calling him up or something like that and getting angry at him too. There was a bit of a, a scrape he had with that. So that might've come across in the piece. What do you th- How would you characterize the integrity of uh, Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News? I think, I think, well, I think the integrity of, of being it cool, like it's, it's gone on longer. It's gone. The story of Harry has continued on after coming attractions. And it's, a, in my opinion, it's a bit radioactive now, like the present day. And that's because of what's, what's been uh, claimed against Harry in the last couple of years with, with the um, sexual allegations. Before I can only speak about my time with him. There was there was there was the big talk about integrity in 2000 and around those years about, you know, are you are you being non-biased 
by giving a review or having a, a discussion or an interview or, or, or presenting like this movie is going to be the next big thing? Do you have a horse in the race? And I think there's, there's, there was a, there was a lot of, of very damning instances where Harry, it looked like from my perspective that he was, he was not being ethical in, 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 you know, a review or a talk. One of the things, I mean, that stands out, that's easier to claim. I mean, look, if you like Godzilla 98 and you want to talk about it being a great movie and then in the second review, after people have seen it and say it's awful, say it's not so good, that's a subjective opinion. And that's, that's one example of what happened with Harry. And that's totally subjective. But when he did a review of Drew's scripts, right, for amusements and put it on the site and was talking about how a great script it was, and he didn't say, by the way, this is Moriarty. You know, this, he's one of the co-authors of this. That is a definite clear sign of not having a certain level of integrity. To your, to your readership. Now, I can make that claim. That's a personal subjective claim for me, but I also know enough about this industry. There's lots of people that do that. I mean, Hollywood is all about that. It's about, you know, here's, here's why my idea for this movie is better than this other person's idea for a movie. Or here's why you want to spend $12 and go opening weekend to see my movie and not the competition's movie. That's what the game is all about. I, I mentioned a couple of the stories earlier about that. So was Harry playing a game where the rules were, 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 were told to him, what he expected when he went into it? Or was it, was it, was it, you know, legitimate, he should have never done that. That's an interesting question. And, you know, that's what I find interesting about this discussion is, you know, those are the type of things that, that happen with discussion about other events or other other industries. And it's something that, you know, maybe more people should be talking about with social media and online influencers is what, where are the demarcations? How should people approach um, content that's online? You know, right now there's not a lot of discussion about that other layer and it's more about what are the effects that come from it? You know, people's lives can be ruined. Uh, people have, you know, they, they can suffer depression. Um, there's a whole bunch of things that are, that are negative from wanting to present this superficial, if not illusion to the world about what reality is for somebody. At the end of the day, I mean, this, these are about movies. It's not about somebody's body image or sexuality or marriage. And those things are more grave. So I try to keep that in mind too. <laughs> All right, man. I will let you know um, if I have any follow-up questions. You know, I might uh, be hit up for some fact-checking on some things and I'll let you know, okay? Sure. It was a great <laughs> conversation. I appreciate your interest. Um, thanks, for, thanks for being interested in this era. It's nice yeah. to talk to somebody about it. And so thank you guys for listening. That was uh, our show for this week. Next week we go into the episode that for me is the reason the big, one of the big reasons I made this show It, it explores something that was on my mind 
and just a pivotal moment in cinema history. And, you know, I'm sure people are going to nitpick different parts of it, which is great. It's really a story that I care about a lot. And I hope that you guys enjoy it and I'll see what you guys say about it next week. So yeah, thank you uh, for uh, talking with me today, Chris. Yeah. Thanks Joe. It's been fun as always. All right. I will talk to you again in two weeks. All right. See ya. (laughs) Bye.